Welcome back to Knowing Nature, a podcast about environmental education. This show is all about sharing experiences, perspectives, and best practice for helping people to connect with the natural world. I took a little bit of a longer break than I was intending to over the summer, so I'm going to call it a season break and welcome you all back to season three of the show. Season three is going to pick up where season two left off with this episode, which is all about community and conservation. So we've been washing our hands a heck of a whole lot more over the last year and a half or so, and you may have found yourself suddenly thinking a lot more about moisturizers to soothe your clean but dry skin. You may also have come across shea butter as an ingredient in a lot of fancier lotions. Now this is a natural oil which comes from a tree which grows only in West Africa in a belt which stretches from Senegal and Guinea in the west to South Sudan and Uganda in the east. There, it is not just a nice smelling ingredient for skin creams. The fruit of the shea tree is a source of food for many people and many animals, and the oil made from the seeds is used in ceremonies and cooking. And because of when the fruit ripens, and the fact that its dried seeds can be stored over time, shea trees can be an important source of income during an otherwise quite lean part of the year. But this ecologically and economically valuable tree is facing many pressures. Because the fruit does not store or transport very well, it's not grown commercially. Instead, nearly all shea fruit are collected from what are essentially wild trees. Many of these trees will have grown from seedlings which sprouted in farmers' fields while they've been left fallow to rest the soil. Now, Traditionally, this fallow period has been up to 15 years, allowing plenty of time for seedlings to grow and mature. Then, because of the cultural importance of the trees, farmers will often leave them growing amongst their crops. But as economic pressure has grown, farmers have been leaving their fields fallow for shorter periods of time. That means smaller seedlings, which are more likely to be cut down when it comes time to sow. A growing threat to the species is the demand for wood and charcoal. 70-80% to of households in the region rely on wood or charcoal for fuel, and because of the demand, charcoal production can also be a significant source of income. But as the demand has grown faster than trees can be grown, charcoal producers have increasingly been purchasing fruit trees from farming communities, cutting them down and converting them into charcoal. In this episode, I'm joined by activist Mustafa Garima, who's been working in Uganda to raise awareness of the economic benefits of sustainable Shia products and to regenerate Shia forests. So here is my interview with him about his campaign, the successes, challenges, and his vision for the future. So joining me today is Mustafa Gerima. Mustafa, would you be able to tell us a, a little bit about yourself? I understand you um, you used to be a biology teacher before you became a conservation activist. Yeah, that, right. Yes, as you have rightly pronounced, my name is uh, Mustafa Gerima. I'm a, a former biology teacher, and uh, I still call myself a teacher, though not now in the classroom. Yes, I turned from being a biology teacher into an environmental activist, having seen that there was more need to do awareness in the, to the general public. And this was specifically when I was admitted in a hospital undergoing a surgery. 
So I saw people were scrambling for the fuel presets, and uh, I said, oh, it's here that people know the importance of trees, and out there they are busy destroying it. So I said to myself, when I walk out of the hospital, I will have to leave the classroom teaching and get into open-air teaching, which I am doing today. Yeah, basically, I teach about uh, preservation and uh, protection of the remaining or surviving indigenous trees. All these trees have been decimated and uh, so we actually don't have much, but the few surviving are still uh, experiencing the strong and uh, destructive hands of man. So I said, no, I think there must be a voice for this. And that's why I started an environmental platform. And your particular campaign really focuses in on the, the Shia tree, although I, I understand that you use that as like an anchor species for forest regeneration kind of more generally. Um, what is it about the Shia tree that made you focus your campaign on that species in particular? Yes, uh, thank you very much. I, as I said earlier on, actually, when I started this campaign from the hospital bed, I had... Uh, four thematic areas, uh, one of which was uh, the protection on conservation of endangered species. And this was uh, under a, a, a bigger uh, platform, which I started, as I said, and it was called the Rangeri Mountains Initiative. Why the name Rangeri is because the Rangeri Mountains are the highest point in Uganda, and so I, I thought by standing on top of Rangeri, the whole nation would listen to me. But later on, I, when I was traveling from the Rangeri Mountains to my home area, I discovered that this shear species was greatly cut down for charcoal, and so the tree population was diminishing every other day. So I, I felt that I should raise that concern, and that is how I came to pick on the shear tree. And uh, as you have rightly said, it is not being my flagship. And I, I understand that the Shia tree is also culturally quite important, as well as being important, not only in where you live in, in northeastern Uganda, but actually there's a, a whole belt across of that portion of Africa. Oh, yes. The Shia tree species actually spans uh, all the way from West Africa, that is in the country of Senegal, up to Ethiopia. It is uh, found in uh, you know 21 countries and uh, Uganda being one of them. So you know, the African affair is like a backyard kind of affair. We all have the cultural attachments to some of these, uh, uh, you know, trees. And uh, so, yeah, it is a, a cultural identity, especially to my community and uh, as well as ecological and uh, economic aspects. I think most of us in the West, in most of us who, who aren't in Shia tree growing regions, we just know Shia for Shia butter and its uses in cosmetics. But where you are, it's used for much more than just cosmetics. Is that right? Yes, it is used for cultural anointments. Uh, for example, if a king is going to be enthroned uh, or enshrined, uh, uh, that oil is used for anointing the king. It is also used for you know, welcoming a newborn baby, and that is, uh, we use it instead of your uh, Johnson's uh, baby creams and powder. And uh, yeah, even for cooking our delicacies, it is being that cultural kind of attachment to it, apart from the economic and ecological value.
In preparing for this interview with you, I was looking into how Shia butter is produced, and I understand that the fruit from the Shia tree that that surrounds the the nut that the butter is made from, the fruit itself is actually quite tasty as well. Yes, it's actually a pulp. Just is eaten just like an avocado or a mango fruit, and uh, this is what uh, the, the the young kids used to eat when you are going to school. And you remember, at sometimes there's food insecurity, so that is where you'll get your food for the day. And uh, actually, it is a very, very edible and very nutritious. So it's uh, a wholesome part of it being used. So there's all these cultural resonances. It's a source of food, and then the the shea butter when it's made is used for lots of things. It can be sold internationally, and yet the shea tree is now facing some problems because they're being cut down for use as charcoal. Would you be able to tell me a little bit about that? It's not just facing some problems, but I think it is the problems are now very, very, very drastic, and uh, this is where I got concerned. And I remember, my concern has not been the economic or the cultural, but uh, the ecological point of view. I remember being a, a biology teacher, I was worried of the word extinction because owing to the wanton destruction on the ground, I think. Uh, this uh, species is is nearing extinction if no urgent steps are, uh, are taken. And so that's why you've got this campaign now, because the Shia tree is facing all of these these problems and pressures from you know climate change, from use for charcoal production, and and so you've got this campaign to try and preserve what's left of the Shia tree population in the area. Could could you tell us a little bit about the campaign that you're running and the the things that you do? Yeah, as I said earlier on, I was traveling from uh, the Rangeri Mountains to my home area, which is West Nile. West Nile is northwestern part of Uganda that's bordering uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo in the west and uh, southern Sudan in the north. So it's just that kind of enclave uh, west of Nile. Yeah, I think as I was traveling home, I just saw a place that was once full of these trees just now getting bare. And I said, no, I think as a teacher you know somebody has to come out and raise and that person must be me and so i started uh, that but i was like trying to get ways of how to raise this uh, by trying to organize you know a kind of situation that the community will you know get to recall and remember so what i did was to organize a very very long walk and that was a 520 kilometer walk uh, that actually took me 14 days and it was right from the parliament of uganda up to the exact place where these trees were being destroyed so that is how i started the whole campaign and uh, the mere walk actually brought people's attention and but however i had a, a concept note, a note that contained eight-point agenda with me in my hands as I, I was walking. So can you tell me about this eight-point plan? Yeah, the, the first uh, point was, of course, uh, the walk that was used as a, a curtain raiser. I had to organize that walk. And uh, the second point was uh, to actually meet uh, a group of women where uh, there was uh, the epicenter of this share on uh, our trees and now it has gone down but still you find a, 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 a section of women doing the share processing at a local level so i had to uh, have a, a mega address with them then the third item was to uh, 
uh, talk to three classes of people. One are the cultural leaders, two are the religious leaders, and then three, the government, the local government officials. So that was three. Four was to have a tour of the whole of West Nile. You know, West Nile is a, a region that has 12 districts, and uh, I had to make sure that I visited all these districts to interact with the, the administrative officials. Then uh, five was to, you know, to lobby for establishment of share processing factories, which I can proudly report to you now that uh, three people have already responded to that, those with their money, and they have established these factories. And then the sixth one was... Uh, you know, to which to me is my mega point is to raise seven million share seedlings within a period of ten years, and uh, the seventh one was to to fundraise uh, raise funds to buy seven thousand hectares of land for restoring the seed species, and then the eighth point was now to uh, promote seed trees as a tourism potential. So you've had some success with the, with the factories and the processing, and you've met with local communities. C- could you tell me a bit about those successes that you've had so far? Yeah, as I said earlier, the work was successful, and I remember the work did not only remain with uh, with uh, the five hundred and twenty kilometer walk. In the in the following year, immediately I had to advance that walk to the offices of the United Nations Environment Program that was based in Nairobi, uh, a distance of six hundred sixty four kilometers. That was done in uh, you know nineteen uh, kilometers, and. Uh, Yes, with the other programs, I see it, it is a kind of success. But now the main issue to me is the two main factors, raising the uh, 7 million share seedlings and uh, how to acquire the 7,000 hectares. And uh, I have to report that this year I have single-handedly started uh, collecting the nuts for raising the seedlings. And as I talk now, I already have 4,000 seedlings in my pilot nursery and so to me this is a, a good step in the right direction and uh, what is remaining is a uh, way to acquire that land for the restoration but of course i'm so hopeful that uh, with the uh, amplifications like what you're doing now the world is going to listen to my voice and uh, we can do a fundraising for uh, buying uh, 7,000 hectares of land or even bequeathing a land that was uh, formerly degraded from the shared trees. So basically this is, as concerns the factories, as I've said, yes, uh, I think there's already a good response. Even uh, the government has promised also to bring some factory, I mean, some uh, equipment to these uh, shear belt areas. And uh, my main concern is this thing has to be given to the women groups because we very well know that uh, the shear issue is a women affair and uh, and youth and children and so actually in africa it is called the women's gold and uh, for us uh, from ecological point of view i have decided to call it as the green gold uh, although some of these who destroy it for charcoal call it the green gold all in all it is a gold it is a jewel that is uh, exclusive for the african uh, soil so 
What I cannot say right now is uh, the aspect of tourism. You now I'm a, a, an adventure lover, and so I will also think of trying to promote the sheer uh, not tourism because I'm seeing in other parts with other species like coffee. There is already coffee tourism that's going on the western part of this country. So with the, that consistency, I think uh, I am not afraid that my eight points will go to waste. Yeah, it sounds like there's been some amazing progress on those eight points. I'm also really interested in the fact that your campaign, you you have this big emphasis on making sure that these Shia trees, you're really supporting the income of these local communities. And you mentioned it just there again, that the, the equipment should kind of go to these communities that are already producing. This is really different from often conservation efforts are about establishing like a wildlife reserve, it, like in my head, a conservation effort to protect a species is about making sure that no one touches it, you know, everyone stays away from that area. Can you tell me about why you're taking this different direction? You know, uh, 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 this species is, uh, it grows naturally. Nobody has ever ventured to, to, to do its plantation before. And uh, since it is a natural and grows in, uh, in, in, in the people's lands, and uh, you can't really have that force. Uh, like for me, I don't have that uh, uh, political authority or that kind of uh, uh, military capacity to, to, to make sure that uh, nobody cuts this. And if somebody cuts, uh, is a, uh, apprehended or something like that. So what I can only do is to use the soft words and uh, the soft words are to bring uh, the attention of the community and bringing the attention of the community in one way or another is you have to be more diplomatic. The fact is uh, I started talking about the ecological benefits of it, but later on I realized that there's the economic aspect. So talking about the economic aspect will uh, automatically translate into these people becoming you know, the, the, the guardians of this species. I mean, if you tell them this tree has this economic benefit and uh, you uh, rightly bring it practically by seeing that uh, the, the the women gather these nuts from the from the wild and they sell it to these factories and they also have their cooperative organizations where they can gather the nuts in groups and sell it to the factory and also own their own uh, factories then uh, automatically they will become i mean definitely they will become the natural guards to this and uh, i will not now go and tell them please protect this because they shall have realized the real economic importance of this once the economic importance is realized the ecological you know the ecological benefits will come it will just come automatic tree planting recently has come under a lot of scrutiny because sometimes with these tree planting campaigns uh, a big company will come in they'll sponsor a tree planting campaign you'll plant millions of trees but then most of them die because no one's looking after them how are you looking at that potential problem of a, of a big tree planting campaign like this? Actually, you're making me laugh at the background. You have exactly said uh, it. And I think if you have been following my uh, social media platforms, I, I am opposed to this terminology of tree planting. I have always advocated for you know the tree growing just as you have said like here in uganda we have so many organizations including the government giving millions of millions of seedlings to people to plant but uh, at the end of a year what when 
you come to do uh, you know an evaluation you find that out of 1 million only uh, maybe 199 uh, have survived and so this has been a waste of resources and uh, actually a waste of energy so what i usually do is uh, to make sure that we don't actually do pre-planting for me my philosophy is tree growing i give you 10 seedlings and i i make sure that the 10 will have survive i make a follow-up i work with uh, institutions educational institutions and for for information the one big institution the highest uh, uh, educational learning institution that's uh, our university in the region has already got concerned and is willing to you know work with me because they have a very big chunk of land where they want to plant the the, the shear trees and uh, as i said the shear trees will eventually act as a lab for the forest is uh, faculty of forestry and uh, there's also faculty of agriculture and uh, environmental science so of course these ones will have their lab in the jungle and the shear tree will be one part of that uh, lab so in, in summary you have rightly described it uh, uh, it is better for us to do tree growing other than tree planting the difference between tree growing is uh, of we we tend to follow up for uh, how many trees are planted and how many have survived and we need to to replace those that have gotten, uh, I mean, have died, so that uh, the number remains consistent. Instead of pre-planting, where nobody bothers to follow up, I have to bring this example to you. When I finished my 520-kilometer walk, I was uh, called on by, by the Parliament of Uganda to to lead a pre-planting with the Commonwealth Parliamentary Conference delegates that was held in Uganda in 2019, and we planted over 600 uh, trees. But uh, if I can report to you now, uh, I'm not sure if even uh, 150 have survived. So this is a total waste of resource. And uh, exactly this is what we're trying to fight against. Are you facing any kind of resistance from your campaign? Like, are you need to educate people about the Shia tree? Do you need to change attitudes? Or, or are you finding that actually it's, it's just an awareness thing? Oh, yes. I think in terms of challenges, it is being there. Actually, before you finish this question, of course, my heart was already in pain because uh, ever since I started my environmental campaigns, I have already been arrested and detained for three times. And uh, I think the recent one was when I was on my 260-kilometer uh, mirror walk to the Camino to Glasgow. You remember I organized a 260-kilometer walk where it was in solidarity with the those uh, who are walking, who are in the Camino to Glasgow. So I was detained and uh, that is one big challenge. Another challenge is, you know, uh, this activism has brought uh, so many enemies because uh, you very well know that uh, there is a commercial charcoal trade that is going within and outside Uganda. And of recently, it has been discovered that even the whole of Middle East is buying charcoal from Uganda. And so when they hear a poor boy like me trying to talk about this automatically you are stepping on the toes of uh, the few big rich and so these are challenges and another thing is some of the local district governments still use charcoal as their revenue source so when as an individual and a private person you go around you know you know talking about this and that they still look at you as 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 a threat so yeah in this case uh, we have challenges and uh, of course the financial challenge but i think uh, this one has 
ever being with there with me and it's the reason why i always do my things in my own way i have never called on other people to to come with me because i don't have that money to pay for their food and this except the last walk is when my elder brother who is being a, a retired civil servant saw that there was need to escort me and we walked actually on on a bare pocket but uh, thank god we're able to finish it those challenges that you've faced particularly with charcoal production because there that is a way of deriving income from from these trees like i understand that shia trees it sounds like they produce particularly good charcoal so there's kind of extra demand for them how have you approached changing people's attitudes towards i guess sustainable use of shia trees actually as i told you in my eight point campaign actually when i had written down those points um, my argument was that uh, if we bring in uh, factories near these people where the, the price of the of the nuts collected by the women the in the wild will they automatically be doubled and the price will be more than a price of a bag of of, of charcoal such that uh, the local people will understand that uh, uh, selling the nuts is far much better than cutting the trees down for making charcoal and you remember once these trees are cut they do not regenerate that kind of ease and so by cutting the trees down they will have gone for forever and and so that was one way i was trying to do but uh, in the course of my advocacy i came to realize later on that uh, actually the local people have only a three percent stake in in destroying actually these trees it has come to my notice that uh, uh, the, the greater threat to the tree is the commercial charcoal trade as you have rightly said they claim that the tree species produces what they call the superior quality charcoal and this one i ascertained it during my walk to the united nations office in nairobi where i was moved around the nairobi city by world agroforest center that actually co-hosted me together with the, the united nations and uh, there i exactly found that uh, the sheer tree charcoal has its different uh, specifications and it uh, has its own on prices and so uh, i think uh, the charcoal business the commercial charcoal trade is the big problem and it's not done by the people of the shear belt it's now done by people who come from other regions but because they have the financial muscle and they can you know easily bribe the the security uh, operatives or whatever and the other authorities in that perspective so yeah, as we all know, in the global world, the, the, the rich feel control every aspect. So, yeah, they have the capacity because in our local language, we say money talks. And so that has been a very big challenge here. So hopefully by having local people see that there's even more financial benefit to be had from keeping these trees, then that will incentivize them into putting in more protections, I guess, for these trees so that commercial charcoal producers aren't allowed to just come in and, and remove the trees. 
Exactly. That is my thought now. That's why actually my campaigns are moving from village to village. I actually interact with the own people. The good thing is uh, uh, we we more like speak the same language. So I usually go to them to interact with them to see the the benefits of this from a local perspective and not to allow their revenue go to other people's hands because the commercial charcoal dealers are not from within. And so once they go there with their money, even the, the benefit, the profits they get from this trade is not going to benefit the rural areas. So I think the local people should understand. And once uh, a factory, for example, is set in that area, it's going to employ a number of youth and uh, all the, the earnings they get from that kind of employment will still remain in the area and in the long run it will turn into a development tool so that is the arguments i usually have to establish with these people at the local levels if we can circle back around thinking long term if if these shia trees get get replanted we get the heck 7000 hectares what is the ecological benefit of having shia forests regenerated the ecological benefits are really immense. I, as I rightly stated earlier on that the shear trees are found in Africa, just below the Sahara Desert, and it is found in 21 countries. And you'll find that in these shear belt countries, it is being found that the honey produced from these countries has the best quality honey. And uh, of, of the 21 countries, it is being found that uh, Uganda and South Sudan have the best quality honey in the world market. That means uh, uh, the, the bees use the pollen from, from, from the shear trees for, for producing a very high quality honey. And uh, apart from this, there are other ecological benefits. Of course, uh, you know, the, the, the shear tree, its uh, physiological uh, content is in such a way that uh, it has, I think, some kind of electrolytes. And uh, I think from that kind of point, I think the botanists uh, whom I'm not trying to bring on board, like uh, the university lecturers, will have a better explanation to that. But of course, from me as an elementary school teacher, a biology teacher, what I know is uh, the sea trees have a better ecological benefit and uh, that is what I'm trying to fight because this is an exclusive species to our area and once we lose it, that means we shall have lost our pride. Do um, the kids in, in your area and do the, the people, do they still see the value of, of these trees? I, I guess, do, do they still have like a connection? Yes, they actually have connections uh, in so many ways. The cultural attachment, the, uh, the, the economic attachments to it, and also from the elite group, there's the ecological uh, attachment to it. So I think, uh, to be honest, culturally, I just realized on the ground that uh, those years, if you are found cutting this tree, you will be penalized by the cultural leaders. It is only because of these capitalistic tendencies where money is now taking precedence over other facets of life that uh, people now tend to you know, forget some of these cultural attachments. But otherwise, uh, they still have their cultural attachment to this tree in that sense. So for people who listen into the podcast, if they're listening, uh, I guess let's start with locally. If they're listening within Uganda, what are things that people can do to help support your campaign? 
Yeah, I, I think uh, the first thing, as I said, is uh, for this campaign to be strengthened. The first thing is to impress the campaign itself. If you impress the idea that we really need to save the species, then the rest will become just an ABC. Because the greatest point here is, do we accept that this tree species is getting destroyed and destroyed to that level? If yes, then what can we do? And what can we do is by beginning to replace it, to restore it, accepting to, to grow the, the, the seedlings in their own lands. Remember, as uh, I was moving in this uh, long, uh, this 260 kilometer walk recently, I had two main activities. One was to move from uh, one administrative office to another to call on them to mainstream, actually to include in their budgets, uh, the, I mean, sheer not uh, nursery sites that should be in their budgets and two i was talking to the local people to impress the idea of now beginning to to plant or grow these uh, trees because initially they knew that these trees were just in the wild the natural grown so it is now high time we need to begin growing these trees on our piece of land and after all, this is an agroforest uh, tree species that can be uh, grown with other uh, food crops. And so it is not going to bring a lot of burden to the land or to the farmlands. Oh, I see. So, so actually, local farmers could plant a few of these shea trees in and amongst their other crops. There were already local, uh, low-level uh, nursery attendants who are raising this. So when they heard about my voice, they could also report to me that we have a few nurseries here. Yeah, the fact is, even now, people with the commercial visions for future have now started planning. It's just recent. A colleague who formerly worked with the FAO, the Food and Agricultural Organization, have, has planted 1,000 in his own field. So these are indications that, uh, yeah, uh, people are now uh, are responding to my call. And of recent, I think uh, one of the of the implementing partners with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in, in the Western region, which is hosting uh, you know, the largest, uh, I think, the largest number of, of refugees in the world, even distributed uh, 13,000 seedlings of the year to, to host communities and the refugees to plant. So I think uh, the, the whole response to me is, is really very pleasing, yeah. And I already got calls for, for so many siblings to be given out next year. And now uh, that is where the challenge comes. And now my single hand needs to be, you know, supported with other hands. And that's when I'll begin to have uh, very rigorous kind of uh, fundraising campaigns, actually, which I had never thought of before because I wanted the people, first of all, to listen to my voice and now will take actions now that they have got the voice. Uh, but I think my message has really reached and even uh, the parliament of Uganda actually recognized what I was doing for the first time. And uh, yeah, what remains is them to now actualize or operationalize their talks because that is being my philosophy. Let's walk the talk, not just this kind of talk, talk, talk. Just like my friends are saying for the COP, uh, the COP, conferences which always blah 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 <laughs> but to me the issue of blah, 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 stop we should really get on the ground and make sure that 
we walk our talk. Yeah, absolutely. So let, let's hope that the uh, international community comes on board as well, because uh, as you mentioned, the international community is involved in the problem in, in terms of purchasing of charcoal and whatnot, but also they're involved in purchasing Shia, Shia butter products. So it's something that matters globally, and it helps to combat climate change. In terms of people who are listening internationally, what are some things that they might do to support your campaign? Exactly. I think the point here is uh, from this tree, the main, main product is the nut that gives oil. It is the oil which is still the liquid part. And then when it is solidifies, it gets into butter. The butter is the, is, is the form where you can store it for long. So, But the, the, the sheer butter is still a raw material actually for uh, many other finished products. For example, we talked about the benefits of this. It is medicinal, it is confectionery, it is uh, for cooking, it is cosmetic. So what I know is even the biggest markets or consumers of the Shia product are not the Africans and are not from my village. They are actually in the US, in Canada, in the other Western worlds. So I think uh, the international community, yes, has taken this by, uh, first of all, uh, joining hands in, with me to raise uh, the, the, the 7 million uh, share seedling project, uh, which is within 10 years. But that is not just the end of it. Actually, I had planned 7 billion because in my life, uh, it's, it's not really logical for someone like me to talk about 7 billion, but of course, it, it, it is an eventual process. We can still raise to that 7 billion. So let's start with the 8 million, then we'll advance to that. But of course, this one needs a concerted effort from the global community. And two, if they still open markets and they offer good prices, then the local women will know that, oh, there's a market out there. So uh, they are not going to even allow their own trees in their gardens to be destroyed by the charcoal dealers. Remember these charcoal, uh, commercial charcoal dealers, as I said earlier, come from other places. They only come and buy these trees from the farm owners with the, with the peanut amounts of money. And so, but if these people had a, a bigger economic uh, uh, import, I mean, value by opening bigger markets in the, in the, in the outside world, then uh, they are going to protect this. Then uh, with other sources and uh, I personally would even say that the, the international world could even come on the ground and also, you know, establish some share processing factories here because a country like Uganda is, uh, it allows a foreign investment. So it, it, this is all going to add up to fighting this war. Once there are foreign investments in, in this field of the share, then automatically the local people, and I know that's what I know with my own people, when they see a foreign investment, they know there's money. So they're not going to, you know, to temper, to continue destroying these share trees. Another thing is this is a real really big call on the United Nations and other big, big governments that uh, the issue of charcoal trade should actually stop because recently a Ugandan newspaper covered it here of recent charcoal is being going through from, from where I am to, to Kenya and then from Kenya it is rebranded now exported to, Yam, uh, to, to Pakistan, to Yemen and other Middle East countries. So this is a serious thing on, 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 a, on a global note and so I think 
Africa, while at the COP, these are some of the issues these people have to, you know, to discuss. You say the, what the global community could actually do. Recently, I think two weeks ago, a friend of mine just helped me to make, a, I think, a two or four page website that is currently being unleashed. It is going out. And the website is called savetheshiretree.org. And uh, yeah, anyone can uh, easily uh, log on to that and find facts because I always uh, keep uh, giving points about that. So far, I think uh, my call now to the the, the COP26, which is a which is a conference of all stakeholders in the climate crisis, is that the biggest challenge to the shear trees is uh, the commercial charcoal burning. If if this is addressed in in one way or another. Of course, I would even give some suggestions. Uh, charcoal is a form of energy, and if there are alternative forms of energy that have to be given, then I think uh, uh, the, 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 the charcoal problem, I mean, the sheer nut problem will eventually come down, and uh, with regeneration processes, which now I'm trying to spearhead, I think we can uh, get back the lost glory of the sheer uh, population. Thank you very much, Mustafa, for taking the time to speak with me today. It's been great to hear about your campaign. Thank you. was my interview about the Save the Shia Tree campaign, one which has a lot in common with the Kaipepeo butterfly farming initiative in Kenya. Uh, Have a listen to episode 56 of the podcast to find out more about that project. My hope with these two episodes has been to shine a light on some of the causes of deforestation and highlight the different forms that fighting deforestation can take. As a kid growing up in the 90s in North America, conservation and fighting deforestation looked a lot like people protesting against big logging companies by maybe sitting up in treetops or chaining yourself to trees and logging equipment, and then setting up protected parks so that trees can be left alone. In many parts of the world, trees are cut down by people who need income to support their families. Another forest protection project called Health in Harmony, which works in Borneo, listened to rainforest communities and found that a good portion of deforestation in protected parks was being done by local people who needed extra money to pay for expensive medical care. By setting up a medical center which provided affordable care which could be paid for in many different ways, including cash and seedlings or even manure for agriculture, they allowed local people's healthcare needs to be met without needing to engage in illegal logging to cover the cost. Payments were then reinvested in the communities and used to support other subsistence farmers. Because communities living in and around forests depend on them for their livelihoods, the kinds of protection that we in the West would give places like national parks are not always appropriate. As Hussein from the Kaipepeo project described, local people were actually campaigning to have the protections removed on the Arabuko Sukoke forest so that they could grow crops on the land in order to make a living. By developing an alternative, sustainable way to make a living from the forest, the community was brought on board and they now work together with the authorities to protect the forest. 
If you are looking for a great way to get your class thinking about these themes and issues, I'd recommend the fantastic picture book, The Great Kapok Tree. It's by Lynn Cherry and was first published way back in 1990. The book begins with a man walking into the Amazon forest and starting to cut down a tree. He stops to rest because of the heat and falls asleep. While he sleeps, he's visited by all the creatures which depend on the tree, and then when he wakes up, he sets down his axe and walks out of the forest. The story really helped me as a young kid understand just how important a tree can be and how interdependent an ecosystem is. But what I wasn't exposed to and what I didn't think about until I was much older was how important that tree might have been to that person. Why did he come into the forest to cut down that tree, and what happens to him now that he hasn't cut it down? Slogans like Act for the Amazon and Save the Rainforest make for really great slogans, but how we save the rainforests and what actions we take as a global community can have a really significant impact on communities which live in and around these areas. Restricting access to land and resources can lead to resentment or hostility in those communities, and in the long term, it can lead to failures of those conservation efforts. Now, global supply chains, international development and aid, the needs and politics of local communities, these are really complex topics. They're as complex as the food webs and the ecology which can surround a single kapok tree. And not all kids or classes are going to be ready to have a look at these issues or to pick apart the pros and cons of things like free trade agreements or fair trade certification. But as educators, I think it's important that we are aware of the complexities which are involved in global conservation efforts so that we are better prepared to help our students ask these questions and research these complex problems so that they're equipped to evaluate solutions which they might want to support. Now I have a blog post about the great Kapok tree with thoughts on how it relates to environmental education, activity ideas to make the most of the story, and links to additional resources uh, if you want to dig deeper into any of the issues there. To find that, check out the full show notes for a link to that post, as well as links to additional reading if you want to dig deeper into any of the issues we discussed on the show today. Last thing to do is to give another great big thank you to my guest on the show today, Mustafa Garima from the Save the Shia Tree campaign. Check out his site at savetheshiatree.org. And as always, if you have thoughts or comments on the show, I always love to have any feedback. You can send it through to knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com. And I'm also on Twitter at KN underscore podcast. That is it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. 